Hi there. This is Sam Musgrave, pastor over college and young adult ministry at Trinity Community Church. This podcast is a collection of the sermons from our gatherings. My prayer is that you will grow in knowledge and love for King Jesus, or maybe come to faith in him for the very first time. Join me now for this sermon. Amen. Well, welcome again to College and Young Adult Group, especially to the new people here tonight. I was sitting in the back, so I didn't catch your name, but maybe I can, can meet you afterward. But welcome. Um, I think most of them are on this side, but I, I couldn't remember. But welcome. I am beyond thrilled about this semester and our study through the book of Titus. This small three-chapter letter that Paul wrote to the young pastor Titus on the island of Crete or Crete. One of the main reasons I am so excited is how slowly we're going to be able to walk through this letter. We're we're going to be able to take in all the nutrients of of God's word this semester, like like a sponge that soaks up water. I, I hope by the end of the spring, we are people who are filled with the truth of the word so that it like oozes from us. I mean, you imagine the sponge or you squeeze it all the way. That's what I want from us. God says there's a season for everything. There's a season for marathons, a season for sprinting. I'm not good at either. But my point is that there's a season we can take God's word and we can, we can read wide swaths and we can see the whole picture. And there's seasons we can take small portions so we can really dig down deep. And that's what we're going to do this semester. We're going to go deep and wide into this book, into Titus. And this week, we're literally, we're going to tackle the first three verses. Next week, one verse. So I'm serious. We're, we're going to take this slow. <laughs> Sam mentioned it last week, but we, we really have all the titles already laid out, if you will. The, the, the whole semester is really wrapped around the, uh, not the idea, that's the wrong word, the, the topic of truth. Truth tonight, starting off, truth that leads to godliness. Next week, truth that disciples. Next, defines church leadership, reproves, works, shapes manhood, shapes womanhood, makes men, makes workers. It transforms, it composes, truth saves, truth profits, it protects, and it serves. That's our semester all geared around truth, all geared around this idea of transformational truth, truth that is going to do something, truth that goes beyond mere intellect. James, in chapter 1, reminds us to be doers of the word and not hearers only. That's our goal. And so as we begin tonight, please, again, if you have not, open to Titus 1, 1 to 3, as we unpack the truth that leads to godliness. We have three, no, four points tonight, simple points. Submit to God, know God, trust God, hear God. Submit, know, trust, hear. Let's begin. Verse 1. Paul, a slave of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of God's elect and the full knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which the God who cannot lie promised from all eternity 
but at the proper time manifested his word in preaching with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior. Despite it being an introduction, you need Titus 1.1. I need Titus 1.1. The church needs Titus 1.1. And as such, we would be foolish, as we might tempted to do this, we'd be foolish to just pass, pass over it and quickly breeze it by. It would, it would be to our own hurt to pass over it. Paul is God's slave. Are you? Paul loves being God's slave. Do we love it? It is how he consistently, in all his letters, introduces himself Slave of God, slave of Christ Jesus. And I wonder then, who is your master? Who claims you as their slave? Yahweh or sin? And ultimately, Satan. Romans 6, 17 to 18. We studied it just a couple weeks ago on Sunday. But thanks be to God that through that, excuse me, that though you were slaves of sin, you obeyed from the heart that pattern of teaching to which you were given over. And having been freed from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. Christians are owned by God and are thus called to submit to him. James 4, 7 says plainly, submit yourselves therefore to God. You are owned by God. And therefore you are called to submit to him. Paul was not special and that's why he called himself a slave. Paul was a Christian. That's why he was a slave of God. The, the true gospel, you guys, does not allow for us to have these foolish, the, the, the foolish conversation, I'm going to call it that, about Jesus is my Savior and not my Lord. The first three words of Titus ends that discussion. Paul, a slave of God, a slave of God. It, Someone might say, but what, what about our freedom in Christ? Uh, isn't slavery such a demeaning term? I'm not a slave. Doesn't Galatians 5.1 say that we are free in Christ? It does. Praise God for it. It says this. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Amen. Hallelujah. We have freedom. But the verse continues. Therefore. Stand firm and do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery. Your freedom in Christ is freedom from sin so that you might become slaves to God. He bought you, he owns you, and he determines how you live. John MacArthur says, to be a Christian is to be a slave. You remember the book of Judges? We read that sad, repeating refrain. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? And everyone did right in their own eyes. Everyone did right in their own eyes. It was a dark time for Israel. They ignored Yahweh and they did right in their own eyes. And what happens? It brings, it compounds their bondage. Contrary to what the world says, living however you please. So for all the people that want freedom, 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 we're free. 
in Jesus to do however we please. Living freely compounds. It, it increases. It multiplies it, it, the burden. It, it tightens the shackles. But, but when you come to Christ, Matthew 11 says his yoke is easy. His burden is light. How beautiful is that? Slavery, bondage, shackles, and it'll send you to hell. Slavery to sin. Slavery to God? Light. Colossians 1, 13 to 14. I love this passage. God, referring to God, he says, who, Paul says, who rescued us from the authority of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of the son of his love in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. God has delivered us from a wicked kingdom to his kingdom, from a cruel master to himself. If you are a Christian, you are a slave of God. Paul continues, and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Paul, being a slave of God, submits himself to the Lord's command. He submits himself to the Lord's command. Do we? Do you? Do you submit yourself to his command? Let me explain. See, he is an apostle of Jesus Christ, a messenger of Christ. In Acts 9, when Paul is converted and he, he is confronted by the resurrected Jesus, he's commanded, you, you, you are going to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. You're my chosen instrument, Paul, to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. The, the term here, apostle, in the Greek, apostello, in the secular culture at the time, the term referred to an admiral that was sent out by his king on special assignment. And so it's not hard for us <clears throat> to see why Paul's using the term. Paul's saying, look, Titus, I am God's slave. He owns me because he purchased me by the blood of his son. He is my master. And as such, when my master gives me an assignment, I do not argue. When, he, when Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy, he says it this way. I love this. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God. There was no other option for Paul. There were, the Lord had commanded him. And, and I wonder if the same could be said about us. Are we ready? Think about this. Are you ready to quickly obey your master's command? Do you? My, my point is not that, that, that we are apostles. By no means that, that office ended, has long since ended. But in what ways, like Paul, as God's slave, are we submitting ourselves to him and, and when he commands, we obey? Something else to consider about Paul's apostleship is the, the authority, the office of apostle brought. And in Luke chapter 9, we read that Jesus sent out the 12 with authority. It says, and calling the 12 together, he gave them power and authority over all the demons and to heal diseases. Apostles were given authority and power by God to be his ambassadors. Just like the first phrase, then we need this. You and I need this. Titus needed this. His ears were perked when he heard this. His attention grabbed. Paul is telling him plainly, Titus, listen up. I am a slave of God and I'm speaking on behalf of him. There's authority here. Imagine, imagine the, the presidential limousine pulling up to your house. 
Now, regardless of who the president might be at the time and your feelings towards him, out steps out of the limousine the chief of staff. And he walks over to you and he hands you an order from the president. Now, regardless of your preconceived notions about the president, when he hands you that nice, high-quality piece of cardstock and on the top of it you see the presidential seal, you shut up and listen. As God's slave, do you submit to his authoritative word? Do you submit to his authoritative word? Point two, know God. Know God. Continuing, he says, for the faith of God's elect and the full knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness. What was this slave writing for? Why does he speak on behalf of God? What was it for? Paul gives three reasons. First, for the faith of God's elect. For the faith of God's elect. Election is an essential term in scripture. In it, we see the the grace, the wisdom, the sovereignty of God on full display. The New Hampshire Confession of Faith, that's the confession our church holds to, defines election this way. We believe that election is the eternal purpose of God according to which he graciously regenerates, sanctifies, and saves sinners. Romans 8.30 And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Start to finish. God does it all. All glory be to him. Amen? From start to finish, God does it all. All glory be to him. But why? See, see, if Paul's apostleship was for these, for those chosen in eternity past, for the faith of the elect, why on earth would Paul be on a mission from God to bring about faith in those who are already elected? What's the point? Why is it needed? Why is that needed? If they're already elected unto salvation, what's the point of Paul's apostleship? Because God, in his perfect and holy wisdom, wills that while he elects in eternity past those who would inherit salvation, you and I must respond in faith. In saving faith. God's, listen to this, God's election does not nullify your duty to exercise saving faith. And, as we're going to see in a moment, it certainly does not nullify godly living. In fact, it is those things that prove that you are the elect of God. That's why Paul was an apostle, to bring about the faith of God's chosen ones. Because listen, when we hear the word of God, moved by the spirit, we exercise faith and that faith confirms we are indeed the elect. But there's another reason here for Paul's apostleship. It says this. For the full, and the full, so for the faith of God's elect and the full knowledge of the truth. Saving faith drives us to a knowledge of the truth. Drives us to a knowledge of the truth. We, we, we don't shame little faith. We recognize even the littlest faith saves. 
We, we look at the thief on the cross. He did not have time to, to, to go study all the theology in the, in, in the world. He was moments away from dying and his faith saved him. But for anybody who lives longer than a couple minutes after they say exercise saving faith, supplement it. Paul is saying, supplement it with knowledge. Second Peter one five. Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge. Faith and knowledge are inseparable. They're they're inseparable. Faith fuels knowledge. Knowledge propels faith. Faith drives us to the word and that, that being in the word fuels and propels and strengthens and bolsters faith. They go hand in hand, like, like a tropical beach sunset, like a scoop of vanilla ice cream on warm apple pie, or, oh, did Jake step out? He would have loved this analogy. Like butter spread across a freshly baked loaf of sourdough bread. You can ask him about that later. He's gotten very good at sourdough bread. They complement one another. Faith and knowledge. But, but not just any knowledge, right? Knowledge of the truth. <laughs> Christians are people of the truth. Think about that. You and I must be people of the truth. James one twenty one. The truth saves. John seventeen seventeen. The truth sanctifies. Galatians eight thirty two. The truth sets free. John sixteen thirteen. I'm sorry, not Galatians eight thirty. John eight thirty two. The truth sets free. John sixteen thirteen. The spirit of truth is in our hearts. Galatians five seven speaks of obeying the truth. Ephesians six fourteen talks about putting on the belt of truth. Second Thessalonians 2.12, we read that condemnation comes to those who do not believe the truth. And 2 Timothy 4.4 4 tells us that people will turn away from truth into myths. You and I must be people who know the truth. That's what faith does. That's what Paul's apostleship was for, that, peop- they, that we might know the truth. Most of you have your Bibles open. What you're holding in your hand, that is the truth. That is the word of God, the absolute truth. Listen, if we don't know this book, we don't know how to live. If we don't know this book, we don't know how to live. If I don't know this book, I don't know how to be a husband or a father. I don't know how to be a church member or a friend or an employee. The list goes on. A student, a small group leader, unless this book is what we know and study, unless this book tells me, we don't know how to live. We need the truth. Everything in it, every page, every word in it is pure and right and true. And it's all for your good. All of it. For your good, for my good, for our good. Because what's the alternative? I'm going to turn to the world for advice on how to be a husband or a father. You're going to turn to the world. You're going to look to your uh, uh, worldly 
coworkers and say, hey, how should I be a good employee? No, we go to the word of God. The full knowledge of the truth. We don't have the time by any means, but just I encourage you, go home and read Psalm 119. 119, 27. Make me to understand your precepts. Verse 33, instruct me, O Yahweh, in the way of your statutes that I might observe it to the end. The psalmist knows. I need to know this book. And I I need God to, to cause me, to make me understand it. Third reason for Paul's apostleship, godliness, godliness. Truth that results in godly living. Godly living. This, the phrase, I love it. The phrase completes this trilogy. The elect of God display the seed of saving faith, which leads to growing in the knowledge of the truth, which ultimately blossoms and fruits in godly living. Each it's brilliant here. Each reason is dependent on the previous one. Only those who are born again can grow in the truth. And only those who are growing in the truth can, exercise, or that can grow and, and live out in godliness. But if you're anything like me, and I at least know my small group is, it's easy to do the first two. And it's very hard to do the last one. We we praise saving faith. We love growing in the knowledge of the truth. Oh, but when it comes to godliness and actually taking this from here to here, it gets hard. Sam reminded me of it last, this, this week, this quote. He said, too many people want to be masters of the word and not be mastered by the word. Too many people want to be masters of the word and not be mastered by the word. The Puritan Richard Baxter says this, 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 this hurt. Take heed to yourselves, lest your example contradict your doctrine, lest you unsay with your lives what you say with your tongues. That's why we read in Second Peter, Second uh, Peter chapter one. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and choosing sure. Are you making it a practice, a lifestyle to live godly? Not not to be saved. We understand that. But because you have been saved, don't be deceived. Just because you believe in election and you have a well-polished, reformed theology, That, that does not make you, that does not mean you're in the clear. I'm going to say that again and I'm going to explain myself. Don't be deceived. Just because you believe in election does not mean instantly that we're in the clear. Paul says godliness marks the elect. Doctrine and duty, knowledge of the truth and living it out, knowing God and living godly. Don't get me wrong. I love studying theology and I love studying reform theology and I love studying the topic of election, but it does not matter what I 
believe intellectually as much as how do I show it in how I am living to my family, to my friends, to my coworkers. When I'm home alone, godliness, ultimately it's, it's God-likeness. It's, it's ordering our lives according to his attributes, his, his love, his grace, his peace. Ultimately, it's, it's displaying the fruit of the Spirit. It's displaying the fruit of the Spirit. Um, the author, Jerry Bridges, he has a book called The Practice of Godliness. And he, he says this, I'm going I'm to read this quote, because I thought it was so fitting. Godliness, he says, is devotion to God, which results in a life that is pleasing to him. It is, Im- listen, it is impossible to practice godliness without a, without a constant, consistent, and balanced intake of the word of God in our lives. Are you taking what you hear in the word and doing it? I mean, when you, when you open up tomorrow morning or tomorrow afternoon or tomorrow evening and you read wherever you're at, you don't make it all about yourself. We understand that. But are you asking yourself, how can I obey today? How can I put this in my life? If it says this, this is what we do. End of story. We're not, we're not going to try to rewrite the word of God. If it says this, this is what we do. If it says that, that's what we do. We submit ourselves to the word of God. As we read this verse though, let me, let me just read it again. The full knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness. As we read that, it can sound like to our ears that godliness naturally flows from knowing the truth. It just naturally comes out. It should, but it doesn't, does it? You do not drift into godliness. You do not drift into godliness. It takes work. And it takes hard work. Philippians 2.12 says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. 1 Corinthians 9.27, Paul says, I discipline my body. And I make it my slave so that after preaching to others, I myself will not be disqualified. I read those verses for this reason. Those are not actions taken by a drifter. I've always wanted to go whitewater rafting. Someday maybe I will. Before I get too old, who knows. I've always wanted to go. It just looks fun. I hear it's a lot of work. I know there's like different tiers and I probably have to start with like the littlest one. But I imagine for some strange reason, if you were trying to go against that raging current, it would take a lot of strenuous effort. If you just stopped, you're going to go the way the river is going. That's just that's common sense, Right. It would take a lot of work to go against that current. And if the entire world is pushing you in one godless direction, it is going to take work to paddle towards godliness. Now, hear me. The Bible is not advocating, does not advocate works-based salvation. And It also does not advocate that after you were saved by grace, now it's all up to you and you have to work really hard. That's not my point. That's not the Bible's point. But 
My point is that as we pursue godliness, we do not put our hands in our pocket and say, let go and let God. I'll just read the Bible and it's going to happen. No, it's not. We must strive to godliness. And, and again, <clears throat> first, uh, excuse me, Philippians 2.12 does say and praise God. It is God who is at work in you. God is at work. His spirit is in you. The one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. We're no longer slaves to sin. We're slaves to righteousness. There can be victory, but it takes work. It takes work to walk and to pursue godliness. God at work through us, yes. And yet we must be faithful to obey. Third point, trust God. Trust God. Not only does this text call us to submit to God and know God, but, but it establishes why we can trust him. It says this, verse two, in the hope of eternal life, which the God who cannot lie promised from all eternity. What comes to mind when you hear the word hope? Think about that. How do we use the term daily living? Is it, is it, is it a strong desire? I hope I can get this job. Is it wishful thinking? Is it, is it simply, <clears throat> is it simply another word for maybe in your vocabulary? That's how the world defines it. What about God? The Bible defines it so much more glorious. First, hope is bedrock assurance on the promises of God. Take it to the bank. You can take it to the bank. What God has said will come to pass. Second, hope is anticipatory. It's, it's eagerly waiting for something. Uh, we'll, we'll be there in, a couple, in several weeks. Titus 2.13 look, says, looking for the blessed hope, looking for future, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You and I can have total confidence and, and eager expectation for the coming of our Lord. That is what hope does. It's, again, it's, it's absolute confidence, total assurance, complete security in what is soon going to take place. So Paul's encouragement to young Timothy, Titus, excuse me, makes perfect sense. From initial saving faith to living that faith out in godliness is fueled, fueled by the hope of eternal life. By the absolute assurance in the reality of your eternal state. Colossians 3.1 says, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Paul's saying, keep your mindset on eternal things because it is going to have a drastic effect on how you live today. Is that true of you tonight? I'm not asking for a theological answer. I'm asking for an honest one. Is it true of you? Do you have bedrock assurance one day all of this is going to be very different? One day, do you have the assurance that there will be a day you will see your king and you will bask in endless joy before him? This is not something we think or wish is going to happen. This is going to happen. 
Do you hate sin? Are you constantly, like me, are you constantly distracted when when you want to give unhindered worship to your king, you find yourself constantly distracted? When you want to go to prayer, you find your mind going left and right. Do you long to fully love and obey him? Are you... Are you weary of the constant enticements of the world being dogged day in and day out by your flesh? You can have hope. We are meant to have the absolute assurance And the reality of our eternal state, our eternal life with Christ, it's going to happen. 1 John 3, 2, I personally think one of the most encouraging passages in all of scripture says, When he, Christ, appears, we shall see him as he is. For we shall be like him. But it gets even better. Can we have hope in our eternal state? Yes. Can we fully trust in the God who promised it to us? Oh yeah. Look at this. Which God, which the God who cannot lie promised from all eternity. I want consider that. God cannot lie. Not that he will not, it's that he cannot. Hebrews 6.18 says that it is impossible, it's impossible for God to lie. I don't, I don't know if you've ever gotten in a conversation with people, I, I have, and they're like, oh, you know, is there anything God can't do if he can do anything? What about this? Yep, there is. It's impossible for God to lie. It's impossible for God to lie. Proverbs 30 verse 5 states that every word of the Lord proves true. Everything God speaks in his word is true. It's impossible for God to lie to you. Joshua 23, 14. Joshua says, now behold, today I'm going the way of all the earth. And you know in all your hearts and in all your souls that not one Word of all the good words which Yahweh your God spoke concerning you has failed. All have come to pass for you, not one of them has failed. Do you believe that? Beyond beyond the intellectual assent of saying, yep, God's word is truth, do you Believe that God cannot lie to you. That every word in this book proves true. It's impossible for him to lie. And that none of his words fail. But wait, it gets even better. Not only can we have the hope in eternal life, not only can we trust God, But when was that promise made? Look at your Bibles. When God looked down the corridors of time and said, ah, that person will be good enough. No. God made this promise in eternity past. In love, God chose us before the ages began. All of this from, from, a Christ, from the Christian's initial saving faith through their final reign with Christ, all done, deep, determined, promised in eternity past. Justification, sanctification, glorification. We see it all right here in these verses. All of it promised by God. Oh, what love. What grace. 
What wisdom. We, we, really, we have nothing to boast in, friends, but this. And we boast loudly, Christ. Christ. We can indeed trust God in all these things. Final point. Hear God. Verse 3. But at the proper time manifested his word in preaching, with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior. Hear God. Now I'm not speaking about some booming voice from the sky. I'm talking about hear his word preached. Hear his word preached. That is how God drives home truth in the souls of his people. The preaching of his word. So many churches neglect this. They take a... They take pragmatic approaches to it, right? They send out questionnaires to the congregation. What do you you want to hear preached? Flyers to the community. But let's be honest, the only thing people want to hear, the unsaved, the only thing they want to hear is, God is love and accepts my life how it is. I don't have to change anything. Sadly, that's what many professing Christians want to hear. Is it what you want to hear? Take Romans, for example. That's what we've been studying on Sunday morning. Paul spends nearly three chapters laying the foundation that all men stand condemned before a holy God and have no hope in themselves for salvation. And yet that right there That is what God determines to be preached. Why? Because God has ordained, again, in eternity past, that through the faithful proclamation of the word, the whole word, not picking and choosing, through the faithful proclamation of the whole word, the spirit of God moves in man's heart and causes them to repent and to believe. Pragmatics don't save people. The Holy Spirit through preaching does. First Corinthians two, one to five, Paul says, and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. That's what Paul had to say about pragmatics. Listen, at this church, by the grace of God, every man that stands up here will preach Christ and him crucified. And God help us if, God help us if we fail. That's what we preach. We don't, we don't get to choose. We preach what the word says. That is how God ordained it. I don't go beyond the, two, the, the leather binding of this book and no one else that stands up here gets to go beyond it. We're constrained by it. In closing, I just want to read this passage. Paul in his last letter, as far as we know to, to Timothy, second Timothy, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom. Who knows those those next three words? Preach the word. Preach the word. Listen. Through the faithful preaching and teaching of his word, 
That is how God works. Our church says this on the website. We believe that the Bible is authoritative and is the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, and opinions should be measured. Therefore, we are committed to expository preaching by which the preacher, guided by the Holy Spirit, listen, is subject to the text. Rightly understanding its context and its original intent, the preacher relies on God's word and the Holy Spirit to instruct and build up and comfort and convict the body of Christ. Hear God through preaching. Not just on Sundays. Technology, guys. The amount of apps you can find with, with faithful Bible teachers and preachers. And if you don't know of any, come up to me. I'll give you, uh, t- like, there, there's so many. If you're at work and your job allows it, put on those earbuds. If you're at home in the evening, instead of turning on the TV, you can put on the earbuds. You can hear the word preached. So as we embark on this journey through Titus, Listen to what God's word has said tonight. If we, are, if we are to be people of the truth, and we said that at the beginning, transformational truth, we must be first a people mastered by the truth. It, it, it must lead to a godly life, a life that is submitted to God, knows God, trusts God, and hears God through faithful preaching. And then as we go from here into the rest of Titus, We are ready to hear what Paul has to say and ultimately what God has to say. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you tonight grateful for what this word has said. Cause us, God, to submit to you. Cause us to know you, to trust you, and to hear your word. Help us, Lord. Let us not take our eyes off of Christ, though. Because even when we fail, may we see the loving and gracious arms of our Savior. And may we set our eyes, may we fix them heavenward with a hope of eternity before us. God help us. We pray this in your Son's name. Amen. Thank you for joining me for this sermon from the Trinity College and Young Adult Ministry. We would love for you to join us in person soon. For up-to-date information, follow our Instagram at trinityc.ya. For information regarding Trinity Community Church, visit trinitycc.com. Until he returns, may the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you.